Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. So what do you remember from election night 2016? You and I were there together covering it when we were both working at Yahoo. We were in the studio in Times Square. Right. And everybody went into that night with the expectation that Hillary was going to win. The only question was, what was her margin of victory? How many Republican states was she going to carry? And it quickly became sort of the baton death march as Florida fell, then North Carolina, Virginia she eked by, despite the fact that her vice presidential running mate was Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia. I started wondering about the outcome when that happened. And then— She started showing weakness in states that had been won by Democrats for a generation. States like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Was it Wisconsin before Michigan? Because wasn't Michigan really late? Michigan was really late. It was Wisconsin. I remember it was around 10 o'clock, I believe, when Wisconsin was called for Donald Trump. I wrote a note to Jamal Simmons, uh, a a Democratic. Democrat. Right. And I said, how bad is this? And he wrote me back. I put it on my legal pad. Really bad. And he looked, honestly. Sweaty. uh, He did. He looked so (laughs) stunned. And I think everybody was kind of thinking, wait, seriously, what is going on here? I'll never forget that one moment when a Donald Trump presidency became a reality. When I remember the Clinton official I was texting with, who earlier in the evening had said, yeah, we can afford to lose Florida, we can afford to lose North Carolina. He wasn't arguing that they could afford to lose Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. They just always assumed that those states were in the bag. And as it turns out, they were not. Here we are nearly one year since that election night in 2016. And we thought this was a good time to take stock of what happened and what has happened since by talking to one of my favorite political analysts, Norm Ornstein. 
Norm is kind of like the fourth branch of government. <laughs> He's been around so <laughs> that's long. What he, that's what he tells us. No, I'm kidding. He's a very modest, wonderful guy. And and he's made a bit of a transition over the last few years. He was kind of a centrist, thoughtful, very academic analyst of he's Congress. He's still thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> but low-key. And he's gone rogue, to quote Sarah Palin. <laughs> And, and has become just a ferocious, angry critic of the way Washington has failed in general and Donald Trump in particular. And the Republican Party as well, specifically. He's taken sides. You know, he used to say, oh, both parties were broken. Now he says very clearly, no, no, the Republicans have gone off the deep end. So we had a wonderful conversation with Norm about election night, about what happened, about what has happened since. We also talked to Norm about his commitment to really removing the stigma of mental illness in this country, something that is very personal to him, Brian, as you know, because his son died in 2015 after wrestling with mental illness for a very long time. So this is something that's extremely personal to Norm. So here's our conversation with Norm Ornstein one year after the election of 2016. Norm Ornstein, welcome to our podcast. It's a joy to be with you. So first of all, you know, this podcast is is marking almost the one-year anniversary of Donald Trump's election. And it's still actually, uh, when I say those words, I still think, wow, how did that happen? Brian and I were just recalling, Norm, what our experience was like on Election Day. And I'm curious, what was it like for you? So when you said uh, we're almost there one year, I did a spit take, uh, of course, in the classic vein. Um, so I Glad was we're not in the same room. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, and please wipe uh, <laughs> off the microphone. Uh, so I was uh, up in New York, actually on air with BBC, and. Uh, to my credit, I would say, trying not too hard to pat myself on the back, I had uh, back in 2015 said, uh, watch out for Donald Trump uh, to win a nomination. But I still thought, based on what I was seeing in the polls and elsewhere, that Clinton was going to win, but by a narrower margin than we had thought uh, otherwise. And watching as the results began to come in uh, from Florida, I got this uh, eerie feeling. I'll well, never it, forget that when Frank Luntz came to Yahoo where we were covering this, uh, yeah. he said to me in the green room, oh, it's going to be over early. She's got this, you know, all the exit polling, blah, blah, blah. And I was there when he called Paul Ryan to tell him that that same information. And, <laughs> oh, my God, I mean, it's just insane. And if you Henry had, Kissinger. Oh, right. He called yeah. Henry Kissinger, too. And it was sort of fun. He was showing off that, you know, he had them on speed dial. But anyway, what <laughs> in, in a nutshell, Norm. That's uh, frightening so in and of itself. We have so much ground to cover. But in a nutshell, real quickly, just to remind our listeners and help them get their heads around this, what happened? Why did Trump win? Uh, some of this goes back decades. Uh, the new book I did with E.J. Dion and uh, Tom Mann, uh, One Nation After Trump, we spend the first third of the book looking at the roots of Trumpism. And it goes to the decline in community, the kind of atomization in society that Robert Putnam wrote about in uh, Bowling Alone decades ago, uh, the, the sorting that's taken place in the society that Bill Bishop wrote about in the book The Big Sort. 
And then it moves to the tribalism in our politics that uh, Newt Gingrich really generated starting in the late 1970s when he came to Washington and to Congress. And it goes right up through the young guns, as they called themselves, Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, and Mitch McConnell in 2009 uh, using that populist anger flowing from the Troubled Assets Relief Program or uh, the bailout, TARP as uh, we know it, that brought this enormous level of anger on the left with the Occupy movement and on the right with the Tea Party movement. And by the time we get to the Republican nominating process, the likelihood that some establishment figure was going to win a nomination had declined precipitously. They were going to go for an outsider and especially one who played on the unease caused by the stagnant economy and the atomization that included this focus on uh, race and on immigration and somebody who would say, I'm not going to be like those wusses in my party who caved to Obama and the Democrats. I won't take crap from anybody. And you one, play one that thing, out. turbocharging all of those factors that you haven't mentioned is the siloed media environment where yes. some people get a different set of facts from people following the mainstream media. Well, I think it further exacerbates the tribalization or tribalism yes. that Norm mentioned. Absolutely does. And if you if you look back, of course, the uh, Fairness Doctrine was repealed in 1987. Uh, Rush Limbaugh then went national with a radio show and uh, was rocketed to stardom with a populist reaction against a big pay raise for Congress and public officials in uh, 1989. Then we have uh, uh, Matt Drudge uh, discovering that the web was a force that could be used to promote his own ideology. He gets an intern named Andrew Breitbart who takes it to the next level and then moves to Bannon. And along the way, we get Fox News and the rest of talk radio and a tribal media that thrives on division, on apocalyptic views. And along with that, let's just throw in that deeper anger at people in Washington, the sense that when Donald Trump says, what the hell have you got to lose? That resonated with a lot of people who didn't realize what we have got to lose and what we are losing. And the effects of all of these factors that you've described were pretty striking on election night. You mentioned Florida. Florida is an interesting microcosm of what happened because a lot of people assume Clinton would carry Florida because she did as well or better than Obama in a lot of the swing counties. But then we started to see what happened in Republican areas and Trump just blew the meter off. You know, if Reagan won 60 or 70 percent, he was winning 80 percent. And oh, so here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the first sign that any of us kind of recognized that something really different was happening that evening. Yeah, absolutely true. And of course, let's face it, we thought there was a blue wall in the final stages that she'd eke out some narrow victory uh, by winning in Pennsylvania. And remember, the, the Philadelphia boss, Brady, uh, said, you know, if we can get our turnout to 400,000, we're golden there. And they did better than that and still lost because it was in those areas in the, you know, the middle of the state, uh, the Alabama part of uh, Pennsylvania, that once again, uh, just what you said, Brian, numbers that would have been 55, 60, 65 percent for a Republican went to 80 percent. 
And I think some of it was colored by just uh, antipathy toward Hillary Clinton, too, which I don't think you really mentioned as you yeah. were going down your laundry list of reasons that Donald Trump uh, won some deep-seated sexism and discomfort with, uh, I think, the Clinton brand, if you will, but also with the notion of a, a woman who many, unfortunately, did not find very appealing. And, uh, you know, there was a 30-year campaign to demonize and delegitimize the Clintons. You can add to that the misogyny. You're absolutely right uh, on that front. And it made her a figure who was marginally more likable than than Trump, but not likable at all to a sizable swath of the electorate. And that did make a difference. And let's face it, the campaign against her, the monomaniacal focus on emails by uh, the New York Times and other places, including stories that were hyped and went way beyond the facts and some that relied on sources that were less than reliable uh, didn't mm-hmm. help any. Well, less than reliable, like uh, i.e. the Russians, right? Yeah, I remember like lying. a friend of mine <laughs> I remember a friend of mine, not to mention sort of, you know, giving Donald Trump endless media uh, access without oftentimes without any critical analysis uh, attached to it. But I'm, I'll never forget a friend of mine sending me a video about Huma Abedin's connection to the Muslim Brotherhood yeah. and her family. And it was actually a very, quote unquote, well done, professional looking piece of video. And I remember this was somebody who was very smart, worked with me in local news in Washington. And I wrote her back and I said, Dana, this is bullshit. And yet I thought, gosh, if she's receptive to this kind of propaganda, you know, propagated by the Russians, uh, who else is watching this stuff and buying it hook, line, and sinker? Anyway, we could talk all day about this stuff, and we're <laughs> going to, well, at least uh, for an hour. But, Norm, I just want to backtrack for a quick second and tell people a little bit about you. I suddenly have turned into Oprah. But, um, Norm, tell <laughs> us about your background. You graduated from high school at 14. We worked together at CBS News, and I never realized you were quite the child prodigy. Apparently, you are. But then you went on and got a PhD. Uh, you were born in St. Louis within uh, an area close to Tom Friedman, yeah. Al Franken, and the Cohen brothers. What the hell were they feeding you people? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it was St. Louis Park, the Jewish suburb of uh, Minneapolis. Um, and I actually had a, 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 a more checkered background than that. Um, I was born in Minnesota and uh, uh, grew up largely there. But I also, my father had originally been Canadian, and I actually went to high school in Winnipeg uh, with Neil Young, uh, among other wow. things. Uh, and then we moved Cute. back to— If only love— could break your heart. Uh, sorry, I sing once. I try uh, to sing once during every pro- podcast. So thank you for that opening. Yeah. I, I think once would be good. Um, okay. And, and, <laughs> How, Norm? <laughs> no, once is good. It's really good. Uh, <laughs> uh, and actually, uh, you know, Neil would perform at all of our uh, assemblies and around, and he had a little group called the Stray Gators, and they played a coffee house. And we all thought that... Um, he would be able to make it as a sideman uh, uh, somewhere. and But the band we had uh, playing with us, um, because we needed a band for all of the dances and proms, uh, also decided to go to L.A. when he did and uh, changed their name to the Guess Who. 
So we had two wow. rock and roll Hall of Fame oh, acts in high school. No time left for yes. you. Okay, sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> right. You're, you're okay. like you're mentioning the, the the artists from my past, Norm. How can I resist? We're on I a love roll the here. Guess who? We're on the roll. She's on a roll come here. undone. Yep. Randy she, I've Bachman. come undone. Randy Bachman was. I never uh, know where I was the, headed for. <laughs> Don't forget anyway. American Woman. Uh, I love. So, <laughs> I know. I like American. Also done well by Lenny Kravitz. But anyway, yes, yes. we digress. Well, given the company you kept and your experiences growing up, what made you want to earn your living working with politicians and hacks and really as an <laughs> observer of of our national political scene? So I think some of it went back to uh, when I was younger. My grandfather, who had come from Russia, became a labor leader in Minneapolis and was one of the a group of people, a kind of kitchen cabinet that recruited Hu- Hubert Humphrey to run for mayor of Minneapolis and then to get involved with politics. And I had an uncle who uh, was in the state legislature and ran for attorney general in Minnesota. And it, uh, just uh, I was really interested and intrigued by – how politics works and how the institutions work. And then working on the Hill was just uh, really interesting and exciting. And, you know, I must say at a time when there were a lot of people you could look up to as uh, heroes, people who were in it for the right reasons and courageous and doing the right things. And then I found, uh, you know, as I started to teach and I began to write for journals and things, it was frustrating uh, because you'd uh, write a piece and send it to a political science journal and Maybe a year later, you would get word back on whether they were going to accept it, and then it would get published a year after that and be read by a couple of thousand people. And uh, then I just stumbled into writing a a book review for the Washington Post that came out two days later and was read by many, many thousands, and I even got a little money for it. And all of that, the intersection of politics and the public, uh, how the institutions work really kind of intrigued me. So, Norm, I think a lot of people are surprised, given your political bent, given the tweets you've written, not just against Trump, but against Republicans, that you've been based at the American Enterprise Institute for all these years, which is a right-wing think tank, former home of the Cheneys, et cetera. You know, how did you end up there? I mean, are you kind of the skunk at the garden party? Uh, So, in uh, 1978... Um, my dear friend Tom Mann, who had gone to Michigan with me and came to Washington, and I decided that we needed to try and find a place with more resources than uh, a university would provide. And we went to AEI, which was then— <laughs> You uh, discovered all the Republican money. Uh, you know, back then it was uh, more sort of little center-right, uh, but more center than anything else. And we pitched the idea of doing what we called the Congress Project, kind of tracking Congress as an institution, all the changes, how it affected policy. And they bought it, and we did it part-time. And then in 1984, uh, I quit teaching and went to AEI full-time. And I've been there ever since. Uh, And I didn't change much. I was basically a a moderate person um, and – the institution, as the pol- uh, politics of the country uh, evolved, became more sharply conservative on the whole. But the most important element for why I stayed there, uh, and uh, it's interesting that they allowed me to stay there, was that I had and continue to have complete freedom to do anything I want and to say what I want. And nobody's ever said to me, you can't do that, you can't say that. 
And if they did, I'm fortunate, especially at this stage of my life, where um, uh, I could leave uh, without uh, a second's thought. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back soon with more from Norm Ornstein. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So, Norm, at the American Enterprise Institute, where you work, which is a conservative think tank, Mitch McConnell came in one day as a speaker, <laughs> and you had a pretty sharp exchange with him, and I just want to play a little bit of that. I've enjoyed dueling you, Norm, over the years. You've been consistently wrong on almost everything. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've always wondered, you know, who eats lunch with you over here at this organization? Uh, I've got more friends than you think here, uh, Senator. And uh, Actually, some of the worst things that have been said about me over the years have been said by Norm Ornstein. <laughs> and you've been, you've been entirely wrong on virtually every occasion. I'm glad to see you. What's on your mind? Okay. Oh. 
ouch, awkward. <laughs> that must worry. That must have felt pretty uncomfortable, Norm. Uh, so I had to uh, think at that time, uh, how am I going to respond to this? And my first inclination was to say, uh, not only will people have lunch with me, Senator, they'll even have a drink with me. Um, but I didn't. <laughs> Touche. Uh, <laughs> so you got into a big fight with Mitch McConnell over campaign finance reform, yes. among other issues. But you helped write the McCain-Feingold bill, and mm-hmm. he was the principal opponent of that. Can you describe a little bit about about that fight and why, since that legislation was passed and signed, the campaign finance system is still a mess and big money is still so powerful in our system? Well, of course, uh, the answer to the latter question, Brian, starts with two words, Citizens United. Uh, It goes to another two words, a decision that followed speech now uh, by the appeals court that led to super PACs. Uh, I could see in the mid-1990s that we had a real problem emerging in the campaign finance system. I convened a little group of uh, people who knew a lot about it. We sat down and hammered out some pragmatic solutions. I went to John McCain and Russ Feingold and somehow convinced them uh, to take a different approach. Um, And uh, then with some adjustments, we managed to get uh, a bill through. And I was one of many players, but I was proud of helping to shape it. And then I saw Mitch McConnell at the Supreme Court when the oral arguments were there with McConnell versus FEC, which was the case challenging this law. And the Supreme Court rebuffed him. He was not at all a happy camper. And then Sandra Day O'Connor left the court because her husband had Alzheimer's. And that, uh, not the Constitution, but O'Connor leaving and Sam Alito coming in set the seeds for a Supreme Court to blow up all of the campaign finance uh, regulations that were actually working pretty well. And now we have the hell of dark money and billionaire dominance of our process. You've written a book called One Nation After Trump Norm. And since we are at the one-year mark of the election, uh, how would you assess this last year in terms of Donald Trump's accomplishments? Let me ask you, kind of turn this question (laughs) on its head. Do you give him credit for anything? Uh, I give him credit for poisoning the discourse in America, uh, creating a kleptocracy, defining deviancy down, to use Pat Moynihan's uh, term, uh, and uh, not doing much of anything to either drain the swamp or help out those working people he said he would, much less as he addressed African Americans, what the hell have you got to lose, uh, showing them uh, very bad things. I have a hard time. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. (laughs) I have a hard time, Katie, finding anything positive uh, there uh, during the course of a year. Um, And Tom Mann and I wrote a book in 2006 called The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America and How to Get It Back on Track. And we lamented what had happened to the institution, but we blamed both parties for it. 2012, we wrote a book called It's Even Worse Than It Looks, and that was heralded by a Washington Post outlook piece from the book that our editor called, uh, titled, uh, let's just say it, The Republicans Are the Problem. And it was a Republican Party that had gone off the rails and become an insurgent outlier. We saw the seeds of Trumpism emerging at that point. We revised that and did one called It's Even Worse Than It Was, and now we have this. And 
what Trump has done is in some ways the logical extension of a party that had turned from a conservative problem-solving one to a radical one and a party that uh, opened up the doors uh, with its uh, desire to blow up government and to uh, give enormous tax breaks uh, to the wealthiest um, for a guy like Donald Trump. And now they're putting no checks and balances on him. And that is maybe uh, in some ways the most depressing part of this story. The political system was set up by our framers to build some boundaries around the possibility that an amoral, uh, kleptocratic sociopath <laughs> To put it mildly. Uh, if somehow that person got elected, we would be able to put boundaries around it. And it started with an independent Congress. And now you look at what uh, the Speaker Paul Ryan says, what the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says, and what they say is, well, never mind that, we're going to get our tax bill through. All of that uh, has to leave you uh, alarmed, um, but also what we are seeing is so many people are alarmed that maybe we're going to have a jolt that gets the public more engaged and gets uh, the possibility of bringing those boundaries back. Before we talk about that, I want to ask you about your tweets. I mean, you've called him a 71-year-old lifelong narcissist sociopath. You've called him a congenital liar blowing up American ideals. You've called him an ignoramus. Is it his personal behavior that you find so offensive, or are you equally um, incensed by the policy proposals he's put forth and the way he's actually conducted the real business of governing versus the personality of his presidency? Uh, so it's all of the above but more. And, uh, you know, the, uh, Twitter has become a catharsis for me as I uh, watch things deteriorate. We've noticed. The biggest, <laughs> yeah, the, the biggest problem that I see is the direct challenge to the fundamentals of our small r republican or representative form of democracy and if you look at all of the indicators that historians have written about uh, timothy snyder in his book on tyranny even the exhibit at the holocaust museum about the signs that you're moving towards uh, fascism uh, it starts with uh, delegitimizing the press when you have a president who says that the press is the enemy of the people a phrase uh, begun by Stalin that was banned by Khrushchev when he took over because it was too dangerous. That is the most disturbing element. When you have next a president who moves to delegitimize the judiciary, as Trump has done by attacking judges and their integrity, and then goes after any kind of uh, legitimate judicial or uh, process of uh, prosecution moving forward, that's disturbing. When you have a president who pays no attention to truth, and when you have a president who, instead of moving to unite the country, moves to divide it, as we saw even now with the reaction to the horrible tragedy in New York City, uh, but we have seen uh, with the reaction to Charlottesville and other places, his personal behavior, the crudeness of his past, all of those things are horrible. The fact that uh, nobody else in the political arena in his party, except for a handful of dissidents, is challenging those things is disturbing. But it's the direct challenge to our governance. So to, to that point, Norm, you're an expert on Congress. 
Is it as simple as Republican leaders realize that they have a pro-Trump base and don't want to alienate it? Or is there something deeper than that? Uh, I think it's that and more. Certainly, what we know is that Trump, who has focused on shoring up that base, and a base which may be shrinking a little, but let's give him 30 to 35 percent of the electorate, that's 60 to 65 percent of the Republican primary voters for the House and Senate. And along with that, I think, is the fear that they have that challenging Trump frontally means you're going to take on the Mercer family and their billions. You're going to take on the talk machine that will be led by uh, Alex Jones and Sean Hannity uh, and Rush Limbaugh and Laura Ingram and Mark Levin and Breitbart, uh, and they'll make your lives miserable uh, along with a primary challenge. And in some cases, as we've seen with uh, Bob Corker, maybe even give you death threats. And then you've got the other reality, which is they didn't want Trump Uh, Very few endorsed him privately. Most were appalled by him. But when he got elected, it was, here we got a guy who has no policy interest, no policy knowledge, but he wants victories and he'll sign anything we put in front of him. So we want to protect that possibility uh, because we can get tax cuts. And all of those are reasons. Some of them are reasons you can understand uh, in terms of self-preservation. Others do such violence to the fundamental norms uh, of civic behavior and protection of uh, all that we should hold dear about our democracy that it's uh, troubling to say the least. So when all these people drop out and say they're not going to run for re-election like Bob Corker and Jeff Flake, will they be replaced by uber right-wing senators? That's the real danger here. Now, it may not happen. Um, In Arizona, right now, of course, the challenger who was going to take on Jeff Flake, Kelly Ward, uh, is a conspiracy theorist and somebody who is way off the charts uh, on the radical right end of the spectrum. Maybe there'll be another Republican challenging her, and maybe the Democrat, uh, Kristen Sinema, can actually win that race. But it's far more likely that you end up with somebody. Jeff Flake is a very conservative guy, but he's also an institutionalist. He is, I, you know, yeah. right. He's Well, he's a real Barry Goldwater conservative, yes, isn't he? he is. And uh, Barry Goldwater, by the way, would also be appalled by what he's seeing now in his own party. But Jeff, uh, whom I've known since he was in the House, also wants to find solutions to problems and build across party lines. And the same is true of Corker, who is more likely to be replaced by somebody much, much further to his right. Uh, So, you know, the prognosis at this point is a troubling one because the people who are inherently uh, problem-solving oriented are the ones who are most discouraged by this dynamic and willing to leave, and the ones who are more radical uh, and believe in a revolution are waiting in the wings. We should just add for the benefit of our audience, you mentioned the Mercers earlier, and and I I bet a lot of people don't know who they are. They're probably the most important conservative billionaire family now after the Kochs. They're big Breitbart funders, huge Steve Bannon supporters, et cetera. But I I wanted to ask you something different, Norm, which is you've been in Washington for all these decades. How have you seen Washington change? both as a, as a culture, institutionally, politically, since you first got there? Um, when I first got to Washington, um, I was very good friends with a lot of people in public life uh, and in elected office from both parties, and we would all socialize together a fair amount. 
um, there was a feeling of uh, institutional loyalty and a pride in what you were able to do to help make the country better. We could get through very difficult times, and it's not to say that it was all rosy back then. We had the Vietnam War when I arrived. We had then the impeachment process of Richard Nixon. We had some dark uh, elements of racism and uh, uh, issues of crime and other things, a lot of unsettling moments. But people on both sides who are dedicated to trying to steer their way through this and work together uh, to find a better time. Democrats and Republicans saw each other as adversaries, not the enemy, and uh, uh, often an adversary one day would be an ally the next. Uh, dinner parties were very much mixed. Now, a couple of things changed. One was you didn't have very many members of Congress back then who would serve and then leave office and stay in Washington. Mostly they went back home. That began to change and they stayed and what they did was they went into law firms or became lobbyists. And the same was true of the staff. Back then you had staff who would make careers out of it and were very proud that they could be a part of it. That began to change and instead people would see uh, uh, staff opportunities as a jumping off point to make a lot of money outside. Uh, there is a swamp in Washington. Uh, Trump is adding to it, not draining it, but that's been a change from what we'd seen in the past. And the tribalism that began to develop in the late 1970s, driven by Gingrich, has become much worse. And while you still have some instances of senators who will uh, socialize across party lines, uh, you don't have it much uh, compared to what used to be there, and we still have a situation that also really began with Gingrich in the 70s where members don't bring their families to Washington and they spend as little time there as possible. Uh, and you now see dinner parties where people are very careful not to mix across these lines because you'll end up with shouting matches or cutlery being uh, thrown or dishes broken. And before, it's, so, it's so depressing. It's so depressing, <laughs> I was going to say, is there any hope for the future? Can we um, do anything to make this better? So um, let me come back to the book. And I have to mention the subtitle because I'm very proud of that. Uh, it is uh, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported, um, and uh, which covers a lot of people. Uh, but it's a hopeful book. Uh, and the path forward, I think, uh, comes in a couple of directions. And I'm hopeful in part because I think Trump could be our Dunkirk. The jolt that the civil society needs to realize that a lot of what we have held near and dear is imperiled. And it's a jolt in two ways. The first is a lot of these uh, larger uh, trends in the society, the loss of community, the atomization, the economic inequality, the stagnation of wages, the sharp divisions on race and party lines, but also uh, uh, between the uh, thriving metropolitan areas and the highly educated. Now we have to think about how we can bridge some of those divides and focus not on white working class people, but on working class people and on policies that can work. That's one part of it. A second is we've been jolted by the challenge to the fundamentals of our system by Trump. And now we're seeing all kinds of elements of the civil society step forward. It's the lawyers, 
stepping up with the travel ban to deal with some of these horrible cases of ICE stepping in and uh, taking uh, undocumented people, uh, most recently, of course, the 10-year-old girl with cerebral palsy. It is the religious organizations, including the Catholic bishops, now focusing on the uh, problems of uh, destroying the safety net. It is conservative policy intellectuals and a handful of uh, courageous lawmakers and people like uh, Bill Kristol and Jennifer Rubin and Max Boot uh, and Evan McMullen and others standing up to try and transform their own party back into a problem-solving, albeit very conservative party. And then it's groups like Indivisible and the grassroots movement to try and get people more engaged. It's young people deciding now that they're going to be uh, looking at running for office, something that we didn't see a decade or more ago. So there are signs out there. I have to ask you about Bob Mueller. This is sort of the beginning of uh, the Russian investigation or or the outcome of this Russian investigation, as we've seen this week with with Paul Manafort and two other Trump associates. Um, How do you see this all shaking out, Norm? Uh, So here's the worst case scenario, uh, that as uh, it begins to close in on Trump, that uh, we see another Saturday night massacre uh, as uh, we had in the early 70s with Nixon and that uh, Trump goes down uh, the line in the Justice Department to find somebody who will fire Mueller and all the people around him and then pardons everybody, including himself. But if that doesn't happen, then I think we're heading inexorably towards a large group of people around the president not only being charged with money laundering, and the president and his own family may very well find that their uh, business dealings drag him into it in a different way. But to me, it is very, very likely that Mueller is going to look at him not necessarily for direct collusion with Russia, but for pretty obvious obstruction of justice. So oh, when so you— wait, wait, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that— do we think we're on the road to impeachment? Uh, well, we're going to hit, I believe, uh, sometime within the next six months to a year, uh, a crossroads for Republicans in Congress. Um, and I don't know where they come out on this. I really don't. Um, we don't seem to have much leadership that is even willing to put some boundaries around Trump. Uh, right now, for example, Uh, One of the obvious things that uh, Congress should be doing is making it overtly clear to the president that if he fires Mueller, all hell will break loose and that at minimum, Congress will empower Mueller to continue his investigation. And that's not happening. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me that ultimately we end up with an indictment of the president. And for those who say that that's not allowable, we have a uh, very long memo written by Ken Starr back in the 1990s uh, as he was investigating Bill Clinton about why a sitting president could be, in fact, indicted. Before we before we go, and I think <laughs> Brian and I could talk about this all day, I really wanted to ask you about the culpability of the Democratic Party since you sure. are so um, willing to, to really take aim at Republicans. But I don't think we have time to do that today, Norm. So we're going to have to have you back or we're going to have to— But let me say, Democrats are not angels here. It's not like one party is great and the other is awful. But what is the case is that one party is much, much worse right now. Let me ask you a little bit about something personal you shared with people in a New York Times article. Um, Your son, Matthew— 
Yes. Uh, you spoke very poignantly and movingly about his 10-year battle with mental illness. He died in early 2015. And that's, I know, a cause that is so important to you and that you've worked tirelessly for. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about Matthew and, and sort of what happened? Sure. Um, let me start by saying how proud I am of you, Katie, for taking your own personal tragedy and the role that you can play in society and trying to pay it forward so that others will not have to go through the horrors. And that's how I felt about this. My son was a brilliant, brilliant kid. He was a national champion high school debater, went to Princeton, went out to Hollywood and uh, was having some success. Actually, he had his own little show on uh, a kind of a funny take on debate. And then he had a psychotic break at the age of 24 and went through a 10-year struggle. A part of his illness is what's called anosognosia, um, where uh, your brain disease is such that you don't recognize that you're ill. He would not accept any kind of treatment or any diagnosis. And we live in a society where uh, if that's the case and you're over 18, family members, loved ones, medical professionals are powerless to do much of anything about it, and the family may not even be able to know what's going on. And he struggled, uh, I'm sure, with horrible pain, I know, and we struggled uh, as a family with pain. He died an accidental death. It was a carbon monoxide poisoning that we are pretty sure was not deliberate. Um, many others, uh, it is deliberate. Uh, but, you know, the prognosis for people with serious mental illness is not a very good one. And the way the society deals with it is itself insane. And we've, uh, my family has spent a great deal of time and whatever money we can, and we've set up a foundation in his name, uh, the Matthew Ornstein Foundation, to try and do something about this and uh, especially to try and bring about best practices. So many people are homeless or are in horrible states uh, because there's no way to bring them to treatment. Um, but also the criminal justice system is a disaster when it comes to dealing with people with mental illness. And we got a, a, a minor but important piece of legislation through Congress, but it's still very, very difficult uh, to change the law and to change the way that people deal with this. And there isn't a family, I believe, in the country that is not touched in some way by the tragedy of mental illness. Uh, so, uh, this is something that has become a, a very near and dear to me. And I will have to say that on this subject, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, who uh, do not view me very highly, um, did step up uh, to the plate to get that bill passed. It sounds like such an overwhelming problem. Are you optimistic, Norm, that that things can be put in place that can actually, if not fix the problem, um, make it less dire and severe. And we're, by the way, so sorry for your loss. I can only imagine how how horrible that was because not only did you have a son who was sick, you couldn't do anything about it. You must have felt so powerless. And, you know, here um, we have a family, my wife, uh, a, a lawyer with, uh, you know, a brilliant lawyer with all kinds of uh, interest, knowledge, resources, another son uh, who is also a, a brilliant kid. We had the resources and the connections uh, that most people don't have and couldn't do anything. And that's the case with so many. You know, now whenever I see uh, a story about somebody losing a child, 
uh, you feel it in a different way when you've had that loss yourself. There's nothing like uh, uh, the, the unnatural event of losing a child. But you also see the frustration and, and understand, I understand in a way I didn't before, uh, that through no fault of his own, and a brain disease is a disease. It's the same as any other kind of disease, but the society doesn't view it that way. How difficult it was for him, and you become a pariah in the society. And there are, you know, worse uh, tragedies for many who have these kinds of illnesses. They get put in prison, and uh, they get locked up in solitary confinement. Uh, very few people in prisons have any understanding of how to treat those with mental illnesses. I will say one of the things that I find most troubling about uh, the Trump administration is Attorney General Sessions wanting to bring back private prisons, which are a cancer on everything that we should believe in. They want more prisoners. They make money when there are more people. They don't care how they care for people. They love recidivism. Uh, and it's much, much worse. Uh, we see these tortures. Uh, Sheriff Clark in Milwaukee, one of Trump's favorite people uh, in his jail, uh, they tortured somebody with a serious mental illness, uh, wouldn't give him food or water, and watched him die in a cell. And that's not an uncommon experience. But I do think that we have lots of people out there dedicated to trying to make this better. And if we can mobilize those people whose families have been touched by this, many of whom don't want to talk about it because there's such a stigma, uh, then I believe we can turn a corner on this. I think you're right. I think if more people speak out, and by the way, I just want to add, as brain science becomes more advanced exactly. and our understanding of mental illness increases, which is happening right now with technology and, and, and an ability to really, you know, take a deep dive literally into – into our brains, perhaps that, yeah, perhaps, yeah. oh yeah. Well, no, <laughs> yeah. actually, no. With with scans and, yeah. um, you know, all sorts of the science that allows us to really look deeply into brain chemistry. You know, that's what I meant. I don't mean, yeah, we're not putting on our wetsuits <laughs> no. and going into the brain. You guys know what I meant, figuratively. Yes. Okay, thank you, Brian. But anyway, um, I, I'm hoping that that will help reduce the stigma associated with, with mental illness as we show there are real physiological, biological factors that are responsible for when someone is is sick with mental illness, just as if they're sick with cancer. Norm, I always love talking to you and uh, hearing your perspective on just about everything. And we're so grateful for you uh, joining our podcast today. Brian, I think you should come to the lunch that Norm and I have in New York if you're in town. I didn't because, know why I was invited. Of course you're wow, invited. Okay. Of course you're invited. Um, if you let me get a word in edgewise, if you don't pull out like, <laughs> what happened in 1980 in uh, Wisconsin in the 8th Congressional District? <laughs> and if you don't do that, well, I'd love come to Come up with you. a hard I question. Reagan, I think Reagan carried that district. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, Norm, so wonderful to have you. And we should mention the name of your book again, Brian. The book is called One Nation After Trump. And uh, for those of you who are uh, depressed, despondent, disillusioned, I think you're going to like the book. For those of you who are big <laughs> Trump supporters, uh, maybe uh, maybe keep reading the Danielle Steele. <laughs> well, actually, isn't that part of the problem? People yes. should read Norm's book if they're Trump supporters. Everybody should read Norm's and, book. Well, not only that, but I think part of this siloing yes. of American discourse is also at the foundation of why we are so divided. And uh, gosh, 
I don't know how you solve that except for people who are really willing to to listen to the other side and to acknowledge some of their issues and concerns. Yeah, right? the politicians are just a reflection of us on some level. So it's yeah, we've got a uh, there's a problem with the voters as well as the uh, as well as the politics, as well as the media. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, on that note, Norm, <laughs> thanks so much. And oh, thank you, uh, I'm going to email you and please send me an autographed copy of your book. Thank you so much to our team behind the scenes. Uh, Gianna Palmer is our producer. Nora Ritchie is our production assistant. Jared O'Connell engineers and mixes the show. Allison Bresnick is our social media mastermind. And Emily Bina holds things down over at Katie Couric Media. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. And remember, if you want to keep up with us on social media, you can find me under Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. On Snapchat, I'm under Katie.Couric. And Goldsmith B is on Twitter. That is Brian's handle. Yeah, I'm like two followers short of 2,000 followers. <laughs> really? Yeah, Excellent. Let's get you over the 2,000 mark. Come on. <laughs> and how many followers do you have, Katie? I have 1.7 million, Brian. Uh, not okay. bragging or I'm anything. I'm kill myself in the corner I think here. to make you feel better, I think a lot of them are dead or are bots. So who knows? But anyway. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of Russians following you. <laughs> don't be a stranger. Drop us an email at comments at currentpodcast.com. We love reading and replying to those. Some of you all are so nice. Thank you. They really make our day. Or feel free to leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. We'll take guest ideas, feedback, anything you want to say. But please, people, keep it clean. Unlike us. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.